Uh, good morning, crew. How are you guys doing today? Good? You're, you're a post-eclipse crowd right now, so... That was cool, man. I forgot that was going to happen. And suddenly it was like, whoa, the world's getting darker. But good time yesterday. But now we're here today. And today, 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 baby, you're going to get drenched in biblical studies nerdism, all right? I'm nerding out today in a crazy way because we're going to do a deep dive into the floodwaters of Noah's Ark. One of the most beloved Sunday school stories for reasons I have no clue of because it's all about the mass extermination of all life on the planet. Kids love to hear about that, right? So it's the perfect Sunday school story. Now we're going to do this unfiltered. This is Sunday school for us big kids. So we're going to look at the whole story. We're going to see some of the messes in there, including how it ends, which is kind of a mess, uh, and how that kind of translates into our own lives. Now, before we get underway, I want to remind you, uh, we do have an app as a church. has all kinds of stuff in there. You can uh, get prayer requests in there. You can find out what's going on. You can sign up for our regroups. Again, last week I talked about this idea of leveling up, maybe getting a little bit more engaged here at Redemption, or maybe serving in a way that you've never served before. You can do that as well. So all of that's on the app. But also on the app is our new notes for every Sunday, and so if you want to fill stuff in as far as blanks as you go along, maybe that helps you track a little bit, uh, you can do that as well. But with all of that said, I'm going to pray for us this morning, get right underway, because we're covering lots of turf and surf literally today. And so uh, we're going to pray and then see what Jesus has for us. Somebody thought that was funny. That was good. All right. All right. Thank you. I'm not going to do stand-up anytime soon, but my fantasy one day is to do one five-minute bit as a stand-up comic and be done with my life. All right, so that's my, my, my journey in life is hopefully to do that one day, but before I do that, I'm going to pray. All right, Jesus, I thank you so much for the grace you show us, and I thank you for how these stories are for our learning. I think about when Paul says that, that we can glean things from this about how they really reveal our own condition our own problems, our sins, and your salvation. And so I pray that you teach us today as we explore the innards of a very unique story once we really explore it. And uh, from that, we will learn how we can be more like you and rely more on your spirit to live life in this world. And so Jesus, we love you and we praise you and we thank you in your good name. Amen. All right, so Noah and his ark, a fan favorite for children everywhere. In fact, we got some pictures here to uh, highlight just how loved it is. And so uh, that picture up in the top corner, that wooden structure of Noah's ark, five grand on Etsy. $5,000. Like you're going to buy that for your kid and then encase it in glass and he can never play with it. It's like, sorry, it's a toy you can't touch. Like all adult collectors everywhere. All right, so there's like that. And then uh, some of the other shots are a little more washed out to see, but you know, in there we see like uh, up toward the top, it's hard to tell, but the, the alligators are like high-fiving on the ark. They're having a good time. And uh, here the cats are indifferent in this children's book because that's what cats do. They're just indifferent. Uh, on this one, there's a little bunny floating on a balloon. There's a snake in a top hat. I don't know how he got on the boat, but he's there. And there's a lion with, uh, I think, a flamingo, and he doesn't want to eat it at all because they're all happy. They're, they're doing laundry together. It's like all so great and happy and wonderful and everything else. And this is the way we communicate the story to children. Now, what I think is funny about these pictures, too, is for the bedroom scenes or even like that waiting room scene uh, where everybody sleeps or sits is all under the waterline of God's judgment, which I think, like, we're not thinking through the story. Like, okay, so good night, little Jimmy. You're under the wrath of God. Sleep tight. You know, like, because like, you're under the flood water. Floodwaters means you're doomed. You're dead. You're under judgment because you were wicked and evil. Tell that to sweet little Cindy when she goes to sleep, you know. That's why you're under the water, honey. That's how it is. But see, that's where we sometimes rob the story of what the story is seeking to communicate. 
In fact, honestly, if, if we were to take kids in our Sunday school classes and really explain the story, we'd be like, so there was like this group of people and they're all evil and wicked and then God, he brings judgment and all the babies and little kids and mommies and daddies and grandpas and grandmas and doggies and puppies and kitties all died. Our children would be traumatized. So instead, we kind of just make it fun and sassy and cute because there's animals two by two in a boat and all kids love animals in a boat. But when we as adults look at this story, we are confronted with new challenges, moral dilemmas, theological dilemmas. What's the purpose of the story in all of this for us? Also, as we get older, we're faced with other kinds of challenges in the story. For example, if you have any science leanings or you've ever looked at some of these things, there's debate. Was the flood local or was it global, right? And there's debates from geologists that say there's no evidence that the flood was global. And then there's the biblical scholars that say, no, it was more global. It wasn't local. And so you see these debates that happen. Now, this particular arc here, this is a part of the arc encounter so Ken Ham's organization uh, has built this as kind of a facsimile of Noah's Ark, but even there, critics will kind of contend some things. For example, they'll say it took ten, uh, like a thousand plus workers with modern pre-milled materials, engineering, and everything else, seven years to do this. Where in the biblical account, you have four to eight workers, no iron, no concrete supports, no heavy lifting equipment. They had to harvest and mill and build all of this by hand within a 75-year period. People are like, now, if Ken Ham would have gotten his three sons together and they started cutting down trees and gathering sap and putting, that would have been cool, they say. But, you know, this doesn't seem to be a fair equivalent. Now, now here's the thing for me when I look at all this. I don't think this story exists, so we dissect it at any of these levels. I, I don't think it's its job. I don't think it's what it's seeking to do. In fact, if anything, I would say this story is not about geology. It's not about meteorology, zoology, paleontology, any of those things. It's about theology versus anthropology. That's what it's about. In fact, going back one slide really quick, uh, we have some books. I'm sorry about that. We'll go to the book slide instead. Uh, this week, I read every one of these on the Genesis account. Yes, I hate myself, all right? And looking at the flood. And the ones on the left were the ones that were more prone to say, you know what, the, the essence of the story is true, but maybe there's hyperbole, maybe there's other things that we're supposed to learn in the story. The ones on the right said, no, we take everything more verbatim, but even in that, they're like, but the answers in Genesis crowd goes too far with the text, and all these different loving Jesus scholars debate this stuff. And for me, I just go, I don't think that's why God put the story in there so that we would fight about things, debate about things, try to figure out how they answer our questions for our world. Because again, I want to return us to the reality that this story was given to ancient Israelites. They had questions that aren't our questions. They had presuppositions that weren't our presuppositions. And what God is doing in the early part of Genesis is moving these Israelites from one worldview that was dominated by Egyptian gods and Egyptian doctrines and understandings, and he's moving them into a new worldview where he is the center of the story. But to do that, as we saw even in the earlier parts of Genesis, he's taking things that are familiar to them, familiar stories or ideas, and he's repurposing those to teach new lessons. And so when we get buried in the weeds of all the debatey stuff, we're just missing the fact that our job is to get into their sandals, to understand their world and what the story meant to them in their world and how it refines their understanding of God. And, and so with that, what I would really boil this down to is that the flood, when you kind of just look at the essence of the story, 
is the reverse engineering and repurposing of the creation story in a way that was familiar to them, but also different. In other words, there's a little bit of a graph here I have on the screen. And in Genesis 1 and 2, it's God takes disorder and creates order. And then in Genesis 3 through 4, you see the order becomes disorder. And then as you continue into Genesis, everything starts to just go downhill until everything is truly in disarray and everybody is deceptive and evil and violent. And God's like, okay, it's so disordered. I need to use non-order to wipe out the disorder to bring it back up to a new place where I can kind of establish a reordering process. That's the way Genesis is playing out. And part of the way God is going to do this is then use this, this, this story of the flood which is familiar to the Israelites. They know of flood stories. Before the biblical flood story, there's the Epic of Gilgamesh, and there was the Mesopotamian flood story and the Sumerian flood story, and they're very parallel to the biblical story. There's similarities in this. There's a great flood. Somebody is rescued from it. When they land on the other side, they send out birds to see what the environment is. Is there any greenery and trees yet, whatever else? Very familiar, but God's taking that and saying, but I'm going to show you how I'm different than those other stories and those other gods. See, in the other stories, it was all about polytheism. But God's saying, no, 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 this is one God doing this thing. It's all about monotheism. And where in the biblical story, God is in control, in the other stories, the gods are out of control. In fact, once they start the flood, it's just underway, and they can't dial it back in no matter how much they try. In the other stories, it's not like the gods were like, oh, humanity's sinful, we're going to give them a flood. It's like, you know what, we're not really big fans of humanity anyway. Not because they're violent, that's great. The other gods didn't care about the violence of humanity. They just didn't like them overpopulating and being whiny. But God's like, no, this was brought on by the sins of humanity. And we're in the other stories, if you survive the flood, it was just you got lucky. In this, it's because God was the instrument of salvation. And so, whatever modern questions we want to bring to the text, whatever we want to debate about the science and historicity of the story, uh, the story's like, I don't really care much about that. I'm trying to help explain something deeper about who God is and who, who humans are and how God has to deal with those problems. And in, as he brings judgment, also brings salvation. That's the essence of these stories. So creation, destruction, recreation, that's the essence. And so we're going to go right back to the beginning to understand how the story shapes up. It's the first point in your notes, which is number one, God injects creation with life to move it from disorder to order. That's the way Genesis 1 starts. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, literally an uninhabited chaos. That's kind of the way a Jewish person would hear this. And darkness covered the deep waters. So notice that, chaos, waters covering the sphere. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and then God said, let there be, and then we know the story, right? This unfolding of development and this consecration of the space, a cosmic temple that God makes for himself. And so he moves the existence from chaos to order. And then as he does that, he separates, he populates, he regulates. He establishes people in his image so that they would be fruitful and they would fill and they would focus on Eden-type things, right? Eden to the ends of the earth. So that's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But then what happens? It's the second thing in your notes. Humanity injects disorder into God's created order. That's their rebellion. God's like, I've created to be a certain way for you to do a certain thing. We decided, nope, we're going to do our thing instead. And it wrecks everything. First, you see it with Adam and Eve, right? 
As soon as they go into rebellion, you see that there is discord and decay and death. Like all of that just happens with their actions. That's like the first stage. But then you go into chapter four, and now their boys, Cain and Abel, they have issues. And Cain is so jealous at his brother Abel, he inflicts instant death on him by killing him. So the warning of you will surely die in chapter three, now death comes by way of the hand of another in chapter four at the beginning. Then at the end of chapter four, we see that there's this guy Lamech and he gets in a fight with a, a, a kid, a youth, and he kills the youth because the youth attacked him. So now strangers are killing one another, not just siblings. And then you have this group we call the antediluvians, which means before the deluge. And it's the population of people before the flood. And when we see their part of the story, they are truly wicked, man. I mean, it's like Vegas on Red Bull and meth with Charlie Sheen as the mayor. It is a mess. It's, it's perpetual frat boy journey 101. So chapter six, verse five. The Lord observed the extent of the human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything that they thought or imagined was consistently, constantly, totally evil all the time. It says, God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence, and God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So he just sees it. It's just, it's undone, man. Everything he'd built it to be, everything he designed them to do, they're doing the opposite thereof. It's just unraveled. So what does God do with the spectacle? What does he say? Well, the surprise might surprise you. Hey, I'm getting a call from somebody in Bothell. Should I take it right now? We'll decline it. How about that? So, and they'll put it on airport. That's even better. All right. I'm like, where is that coming from? I usually put this on the airport. Fail for Pastor Matt today. All right. So what does God say in relationship to all of this mess? Well, it says that the Lord was sorry. He was sorry that he had ever made them and put them on the earth, and it broke his heart. See, to me, when I read that, that's surprising. Because I always assume, as soon as God sees vile wickedness, it's just like he's angry, right? He's hostile. But here, we see this other thing. Now, it raises some questions for us, right? <clears throat> like, um, sorry. Would we expect God to be sorry in this context? Like, I thought God knows everything. And if he's sovereign, then before he even built the world, he knew where it was going to go. So what does this mean by God is sorry or that he has some level of regret? Well, again, in our world, we're like, well, how does that fit my systematic theology? And, and how is God omniscient and omnipotent and transcendent if he suddenly has sorrow or regret? Again, the story doesn't care about that. The story is trying to teach a theology for ancient Israelites, again, that inherited certain beliefs. And their beliefs or that the gods were hard-hearted. Their beliefs are that the gods could care less about humans and their violence. They could care less about that. But suddenly, this god's rolling in, and he's like, no, this breaks my heart. This is a, a regretful thing that I'm watching unfold in the world. Now, another thing that's interesting about this word regret is in Hebrew, it can also have this connotation of audited. The God looks upon the world. He sees that the ledger is out of balance by way of the activities of people. And from that, he's like, man, I have deep sorrow because I'm gonna have to set this right. I'm gonna have to put it back in balance again. And the means by which I need to do that is going to be heartbreaking, but I need to step in, deal, in and deal with this. And so again, the theology that's getting taught to the Israelites as they're hearing the story is that while the other gods are maybe contemptuous or disdaining toward people. God is sorrowful and regretful. 
And where the gods may have an empty heart, God has a sorrowful heart. And so in this brokenheartedness, he knows he's going to need to scuttle the majority of the project. And so in verse 7, the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. Now, a couple of things that maybe we wonder about here is, okay, well, did God give them any room to actually change course, to repent? Or is it just like, I'm done, I'm gonna finish it, I'm not even gonna try to reach them? Well, no, we actually see earlier in the story there was a dude named Enoch, which was actually Noah's great-grandpappy, and he preached like, hey man, turn from your sins. And then even Noah, we see later in the New Testament that he was a man of righteousness that also preached to the people, hey man, don't go down this road. The bottom line is this, they didn't care, so they didn't want to repent. So the effort was made, and it wasn't reciprocated. The other question I think people naturally ask is, why every living thing? Like, if the humans are the problem, why didn't God just do, like, an anti-rapture, right? Just pluck out all the bad people. Or go real tactical. Everybody has to drown, but he just puts a glass bubble on their head and fills it with water. Yeah, like, just wipe out the people. Leave the bunnies and kitties and doggies and everything. Why, why the whole thing? And I scratch my head about this one for long periods of time and life and everything else. And here is my best guess. And that is the idea that because God made humanity to be these, like, Regents over creation, uh, the morality and the ethics of humans are bound to creation. And when we are immoral, when we are violent or wicked or evil, the impact is always systemic. We love to think it just affects us, but it affects everything around us, right? I mean, think about it at one level. When we decide to become too greedy, too profit-driven, whatever it is, we, we tend to kind of take from creation more than we give. We use it more than we tend and keep it like we were told to in Genesis 3 and 2, right? So we, 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 we fail sometimes in that. Or I'll use a different example that's very clear to us right now. Just watching what's going on between Israel and Gaza and Hamas, Right? So humans are then kind of amping up with violence and anger and Everything is affected. Everything. The area, the ecosystem, the wildlife, uh, the toxicity of the air. I mean, all of it gets affected. When humans decide to be in this space, everything is impacted in a destructive sort of way. And so maybe in a certain sort of way, God is teaching the story of, hey, you humans are the key impactors to everything around you. And when you're evil, it's destructive. And when you do it my way, it's healthy. And so this becomes a vivid picture of that. And so, while we were supposed to oversee a very ordered creation, we've become profoundly disordered as a race in the story with violence and wickedness. Therefore, number three in your notes, God injects creation with non-order to obliterate disorder. He injects non-order to obliterate disorder. Verse 13, so God said, I have decided to destroy all living creatures for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. He says, look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die. Now go back to the beginning of your story. The beginning of the story, the spirit is hovering over the waters of chaos and disorder, and God speaks, and over the course of time, order forms up. Seas are separated, you know, the water above from the water below, land comes up, everything populates on the land. He creates birds and fish and animals and people. All through his word, he brings order. 
But now he's like, I'm just gonna remove the order, right? There's a pathogen on the planet. And so he unleashes non-ordering powers on this space. That's all he's doing. He's just like, okay, I separated it all. I'm gonna remove the separator. I'm gonna take out the divide because this is where they've landed themselves. But who did God say this to? It says he said it to Noah. See, back in Genesis 1, God says, let us do this thing. And he's speaking to his Trinitarian self, probably the angels as well. But here he says it to a person amidst the problem of the persons. And that tells us there's another layer that's going to shape up in the story of the plan. It's number four in your notes. God spares a single pot of life from the non-order to disorder event. Because that's what's going on. Humans are disordered. It creates disorder in the world. God's going to bring non-order to deal with the disorder, but he's going to have a pod, a group that goes to the other side. Because even though everyone is vile and everything is doomed, there's still going to be a seed that travels through. So... It says, Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. And Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at that time. And he walked in close fellowship with God, and he did all that God had commanded. Now, there's a couple of ways we can read this. Some people will read this and say, God showed favor on Noah because Noah was a righteous man. Like, because he was a good guy, God showed him favor. Others will say, no, no, no. It says that God showed him favor, and because God showed him favor, then he became a good guy. So there's this debate of the order. I think the order is what the Bible says. God showed grace or favor, and from that he became a righteous man. In other words, Noah wasn't a righteous dude until God shows him favor, and he comes into this relationship with God, and now he is righteous, and he's doing what God wants him to do. In other words, here is a prototype of the gospel itself, that we're sinners, we're against God, we're going our own way, we're seeking destruction in the process, and then he steps in in his grace and rescues us, and from that he changes us. I think that's exactly what God has done with Noah. And so God graces him. He becomes righteous, at least in comparison to everybody else walking around. And then he's walking with God and he's doing everything God wants him to do. Not because he's just a good guy, but because God has made him a good guy. And it's with this good guy that God has made that then there is this icon of salvation, a self-contained ecosystem, a fabricated Eden, a pod of preservation, whatever you want to call it, it is a thing that will float on the surface of the waters of God's chaos and judgment. And so he says to Noah, build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then connect the decks, or construct the decks rather, and stalls throughout the interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat and put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat. Lower, middle, and upper. So you have some basic dimensions. And in the other flood stories, some of their arcs were much bigger than this. This arc in and of itself is a huge, huge vessel. Just the sheer dimensions and displacement are unlike anything the ancient world would have ever seen. In fact, we didn't build boats this large until the 19th century was steel, right? And that's what makes people have all of this debate. Like, okay, is that a real, real size of the ark? And what should we do with all of it? And, and how did you fit all the animals? There's 35,000 animals are gonna go into that thing and they have a lot of urine, like seven, 8,000 liters a day. Like, how are you gonna deal with all of that? And there's 12,000 tons of poop every day. How are you gonna do it? Story doesn't care. <laughs> Story just wants to help us understand again that God is saying, you know what? Humanity has become sinful. And while I have to scuttle the project, my grace will find a way. It's sin versus gospel throughout the story. And so we have this arc of divine rescue. What's interesting about the story to me 
is what is not in the instruction manual. God doesn't say construct a rudder. He doesn't say construct a steering wheel. He doesn't say construct a sail. This is a giant bobber. In other words, it's at the utter dependence of God for speed, direction, and timing as he undoes and reforms his creation. So again, it's hard because sometimes we're like, I want to be in control. I want to drive the ship. I, I want to make sure it gets to where I want to go in life. And God's like, it's not how it works, man. You're rudderless and sailless, but I can guide you. I can take you there. And so again, he restates the contrast between chaos and grace in verse 17 of chapter 6. He says, look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die. But, big buts, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and your wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. And so they obey God. No one's sons... Bobber Builders Incorporated get to work. And for 75 years, as much as we can construct the timing, they build until the day of the deluge comes. It says, two by two, they came into the boat, representing every living thing that breathes, a male and a female of each kind. They entered just as God commanded Noah, and then the Lord closed the door behind them. And just as we're originally on, like, day one, two, and three, God separated the waters above from the waters below and the sea from the land. Now God releases the separation and the waters rush from below. The waters drive down from above and all the land vanishes. It's just the reversal of what you see earlier in Genesis. So the order of chapter one becomes the disorder of chapter seven. For 40 days and 40 nights, chaos reigns until it says everything that breathed and lived on dry, dry land, it had died. God wiped out every living thing on the earth, people, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, the birds of the sky, all were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. And they're in that boat then for another 150 days where things are just stagnant. The rains stop, the waters are gonna start to recede to some degree. But just imagine the stench. Like, inside the boat is bad enough, right? All the poop, the urine, the animals. But then outside, you have literally billions of carcasses between animals, humans, you name it. I mean, it's just going to be a stew of just rotting flesh and debris. But then there's the family of eight in the ark with a zoo waiting for what is next. And you see what's next in chapter 8, verse 1. It's another but. But God remembered Noah. Now you might go, I mean, he forgot him? Like he's a pizza pocket in the microwave or something? Like, how, like oh, Noah forgot. I'm so busy with the flood. No, it's not that. Right? What this is, the idea again is uh, God shows favor. You know, God remembers the promise. God is, it's just affirming that God never forgot him, but God has always been on his side because God has shown him grace, Right? And so the winds blow over the waters just as the Spirit blew over the waters in Genesis 1. Now the Spirit blows again over the waters to remove the cleansing chaos. And this saving pot of life continues to drift another 150 days as land and sea separates again just as it did in Genesis chapter 1. And that's a long haul, man. That's a whole year doing this. And as a parent like Noah, he's got three sons with him. You know they're like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And they... 
brothers fight, everything else. I'm sure it's a real hoot inside the ark. But finally, the ark settles on land, on a high mountain. And just like what happens when you're at SeaTac and you think you're leaving the gate and you get stuck on the tarmac for hours, that's what happens to them. So they have to wait. They have to wait till the ground is solid enough to, till greenery starts to repurpose on the earth again, just like day three. They have to wait for that to occur. And so they keep sending out birds to see if there's anything. And finally, one comes back and they know it's good, we can go out. And so from that, it's the fifth thing in your notes. God resets the order of creation. It's like, we're gonna go anew again. But the new order sits alongside the old disorder. There's gonna be a weird bridge in there. So the door of the ark opens, life spills out two by two in its formation, and then notice the similarity to the early part of Genesis. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Greatly increase on the earth and multiply in it. Again, it's just a rebooting, right? The ark of Noah is just like the Eden of God. It just parallels, kind of. For no sooner does he say this thing, that we go, oh, that's right, this is just like Genesis 1. The God says, all the animals of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the small animals that scurry along the ground and all the fish of the sea will look on you with great terror. Fear and great terror. I have placed them in your power. I have given them to you as food to eat, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. I'm sure the animals getting off are like, what? We're food now? You brought us along just to eat us? What? But that's what it is. Now, the good news for us, hey, we get steak out of it, right? So that's a bonus. But it's not quite the utopia of Genesis 1 and 2, right? And even of the steak, here's what God says. But you must never eat any meat that still has the lifeblood in it. I know some of you like that bloody, red, juicy steak. Mm, I don't know. Certainly this means no roadkill barbecue. We know that for sure. It's getting at that. He says, but also... I require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human, human being, they must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life must also be taken by human hands, for God made human beings in his own image. And so you see this broader prohibition of a life for a life, and it just re-kind of uh, establishes that because I've made you in my image. So back to Genesis 1 again. This is all just recycling through Genesis 1. So it's reaffirmed. Now what's the painful part of this is uh, that while the flood purged the deep wickedness and violence of the human race, from the planet at least, it didn't, it didn't purge it from the human heart. So while God is establishing a Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 pattern in the uh, reboot here, there's still the problem of a Genesis 3 heart, of a rebellious spirit in this whole thing. And we're gonna see that by the end of the story, how it creeps out. But nonetheless, even though humans are gonna have this sin heart problem, and he says it in chapter eight, when they first get off the boat, he's like, hey man, I know that it's still in there, it's lurking, it wants to come out. Nonetheless, I'm gonna make you a promise. Thus God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. And with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, everything that is a creature on the earth, yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all the living creatures, and never again will a flood destroy the earth. Is that even though I know y'all are broken on the other side of this thing, I will not let this occur under my watch again. 
And then God said, I give you a sign of my covenant with you and all the living creatures for all generations to come. I've placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is a sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. Again, in the other flood stories of the gods, they could give a rip about creation after the flood, but God's like, no, I'm just letting you know. I am loyal to the project going forward. I was loyal in the past. Y'all broke it, and I've kind of recalibrated it. I've balanced the books, and I know you're gonna struggle, but I promise I'm not gonna bring that kind of judgment through floodwaters ever again. And it's interesting because the, the, the pledge he made, makes or the covenant he makes is uh, universal, unilateral, and unconditional. It's to humanity and animals. It's God alone making the promise, and he says, I'm never going to break it again. In fact, the nature of this covenant is a, is like a, is a death covenant. God's like, if I break my word, may I die. And we know God can't die, which means God's just not gonna break his word on this. It's his promise, right? And he proves it with this idea of putting the bow or the rainbow in the sky, which also has some symbolism for them that the bow is a sign of uh, a weaponry. And God's like, I'm just setting my bow to the side. It will never use my bow again against you. That's part of the implication of the story, right? No matter how messy you all get, I will not bring the chaos waters upon you again, which is helpful because again, God's dealing with sinful people on the other side. And this is the part of the story that we don't tell in Sunday school. Chapter nine, verse 20. After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground and he planted a vineyard. Think about it. A man of the soil planting a garden. Reminds me of something earlier in the story, right? It's like a new Eden with a new type of Adam. And you're like, this is good. But there's also a type of forbidden fruit in the story that Noah partakes of. Verse 21, one day he drank some wine that he had made and he became drunk and he laid naked inside his tent. My question is, why do drunk dudes always want to get naked? Like, I, I'll watch, like, I, I, this guy, I'm a sinful person, but on YouTube, you see, like, drunk bro fights, and the first thing they do, they take off their shirt to fight. I'm like, what are you doing? Just leave your shirt on. Or Randy Travis, when he got drunk and naked in a church parking lot way back in the day, what are you doing, Randy Travis? You're Randy Travis, you know? So there's this thing, right? And so Noah does the exact same thing. Now, this is, I looked everywhere. I could not find this coloring page in Sunday school material anywhere. I, I did. I was just curious, like, did anybody even dare try this? Nobody tried it. All right, so it's the Sunday school story, though. It's like the conclusion. It's the end right there, you know? So, but they didn't do it. But then it gets crazier. So Ham, the father of Canaan, dun, 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 the arch enemy of Israelites down in the future, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Then Shem and Jephthah took a robe, uh, held it over their shoulders, and then backed into the tent to cover their father. And as they did this, they looked, at each, uh, they looked the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. Now, this is where it's tricky, and I'm just confessing that it's tricky. Uh, when you fast forward into, like, the law of Moses, this phrase in Hebrew comes up again, uh, looking on the nakedness of your father or exposing the nakedness of your father. There's a strong prohibition. Do not expose the nakedness of your father. And they every time it's used is about uh, some kind of sexual activity with his wife or your mom. And some scholars look at this and go, okay, this isn't just like, oh, dad's naked and drunk, ha, ha, ha. But this may be something more sinister. Like either it was something that was done to his father or something that was done with his, we don't know for sure, but it has some of that implication. Now, I'm not landing on those at all. I'm like, it could be any one of those. It might just be, ha, it might be something more sinister. But it shows again the sinfulness of the conditions. 
What's important to me is how it ends. Just as there's this kind of new Adam and a new garden and eats a new forbidden fruit, which ended in a curse, so this story too ends in a curse. Verse 24, when Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his younger son, had done, and then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of the servants of his relatives. You know you're hot as a dad. If you want to condemn your kids so bad, it hits all your grandkids. You know, I remember I used to hear that when I was a kid. I could punch you so hard, your grandkids are going to be dizzy. That's what he does. It's the same thing. That's how hot he is on this. And it really is then a curse to all of those generations. And it kind of reminds the Israelites, too, of like, hey, man, we're going into the promised land. And when we get there, there's going to be this group, the Canaanites, and we're always going to be dealing with them. Right? We're always going to have this problem. We're always going to have a regional conflict because you're going to be a curse in the land. That's the same exact issue. And so in some ways, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it kind of mirrors Israel's relationship to the promised land, right? Even their own challenges, they're going to be brought in, they're going to be blessed, they're going to sin, they're going to be cursed, they're going to be like scolded in some way, and then wash, rinse, repeat, they repent, and they just keep going in those cycles over and over and over again. But the story ends with a curse. There's no happy ending to the story of Noah, not really. And yet, what I realize about all of this is this isn't just an ancient story, right? The, the, the failures of Israel isn't ancient. The, the failures of Noah isn't ancient. The, the failure of Adam and Eve isn't ancient. It's in every one of us. Like, I'm reading this story, and I go, man, we're, we're, we're apt to be the ones outside the boat. We're, we would have done the exact same thing Adam and Eve would have done if we would have been there. We would have pulled a Noah. We would have pulled a ham. Whatever it is, we would have been those. And it would have always resulted in curse because every one of us where our story ends is in curse. That's the plight of the human race. What I love is that Jesus came to undo curse. See, I read these bleak stories because they're bleak, honestly. I'm like invested into the flood story and I'm like, I'm depressed. If I really get inside this story for a minute, I see the sheer volume of carnage. I'm depressed. But then I remember that Jesus came to be a curse, to lift a curse, so that we could have life and life eternal with him. And to me, that's kind of the, 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 the sunshine at the other end of the story, the real rainbow, if you will, is that Jesus came to do what we couldn't do. Uh, Jesus does in us exactly what God did with Noah, right? God showed grace on Noah, and he became a righteous man. God shows grace on us, and we become righteous people. Not perfect, just as Noah wasn't perfect, but nonetheless rescued and saved, brought into life and life eternal with him. And so today, maybe that's really the way I'm going to close the story. It's not the darkness of this story, but the light of God's goodness and grace. And how the goodness and grace is designed to transform us so that we don't abuse the world around us, that we don't abuse the people around us, that we don't fall victim to the antediluvian schemes, but rather we are a different people, a kingdom people, a Christ-centered people that bring beauty and and transformation and, and health to every environment we find our lives in. Because I believe that's what Jesus has come to do in us, and that's what Jesus wants to do with us. And so right now, I want to invite you to pray with me. And as you do, I want to kind of bring forth just initially a challenge for anybody that's watching online, anybody that may be in the room, where you're like, man, I'm not a Christian. I, I've not decided to, 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 to yield my life to Jesus. You know, well, this is the day that you can do that. You know, we say as a church, life is better with Jesus. And this is because Jesus promised to give abundant life, eternal life. In fact, in John, he says, this is eternal life that you would know him, the only true God. 
and do that through Jesus Christ. If you want to know God in a living and powerful and eternal way, today's the day where you say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I yield my life to your grace, your cross, your sacrifice, and your resurrection that gives me life. You lift the curse, and you give me freshness. You make that your prayer in your way. He hears you, and we would love to know if you made that your prayer today. There'll be a number on the screen when you open your eyes. There's a tile in our app that you can tap on and say, I made that decision. We'd love to know. Jesus, for the rest of us, I pray that we will live as uh, reordered reformers in your world, that we would be in the spirit of what it is you want us to live and to do in the spaces that you have us inhabiting every single day. So guide us and teach us and show us, grow us more and more into your image so that we can bless the world around us. We thank you for your grace and your goodness and your perfect name. Amen.